Welcome to the One Question Podcast, brought to you by Wabi Sabi Studios. I'm your host, Michelle Cox, and I love having unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. It's a huge passion of mine, so much so that I wrote a few books a while back that challenge people's notion on living a life more unconventionally. This entire podcast stems around one question. If there was one topic you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? We are mortal and all of our loved ones are mortal. While it is painful to wrestle with that, it may in fact change the way we live our life if we honestly accept that that is true. Mary Frances O'Connor, PhD, is one of the happiest people you'll ever meet, and yet she talks about grief all day, every day. Whilst many of you long-time listeners here on the podcast know, I'm not shy when it comes to talking about death and grief, but I wanted to learn more from Mary Frances and get her take on a subject she's studied for more than 24 years. Mary Frances is an Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Arizona, where she directs the Grief, Loss and Social Stress Lab – which investigates the effects of grief on the brain and the body. She earned a doctorate from the University of Arizona and completed a fellowship at UCLA. She recently released a book on many of her findings. It's called The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss. And here she shares the groundbreaking discoveries about what happens in our brain when we grieve, providing a new paradigm for understanding love, loss and learning. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Let's meet Mary Frances. Mary Frances, it is so lovely to sit down with you today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Michelle. Well, I'm uh, super excited. You are uh, in the afternoon in the US and I'm early morning here in Australia. And isn't it beautiful that we can have this connection together? But I'm looking forward to seeing what we're going to talk about today. I've got a fair inkling, but uh, if there is one thing you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? You know, I think when we talk more about our own grief experience, it makes everyone feel more normal because grief looks so different for different people. And yet it's all within the range of normal human reaction to loss. And when you refer to grief, and we'll get into why it is a topic that you're passionate about, describe that for me, because some people think, oh, well, I haven't had anyone die in my life, so I've never experienced grief. But it's so much more than that, isn't it? It is. And you know, I'm a psychologist and neuroscientist by training, and so I often focus on the most obvious form of grief, as you just said, when someone loses a loved one to death. And that's partly because when you have something very concrete like that, it's it's easier to study. But what we know is that the reaction to loss, the response to loss, looks similar across many situations. So the yearning that we might have in homesickness, or if we have retired from a job, those are also a part of ourself that we grieve when they're gone. So this is an area you've studied for quite a long time. Were you always drawn to this topic and to get involved in this particular space or did it just happen by accident? 
I think there are really two answers to that question. One is that I am a scientist at heart, which is a little bit like being a small child who keeps asking why. But why? I so relate to that. <laughs> I was that kid. Right. <laughs> so there is a part of me that is just curious about how does our brain understand these relationships that we're in? And then worse, how does it understand when that person is gone? Like, how does it update its understanding? But I'm also, you know, I'm clinically trained. And, and I think when I was in graduate school, my own mom passed away. And it meant that I just felt really comfortable with people who are grieving. I think something you you have described as well. And it meant that you know, if people cry uncontrollably, I'm not I'm not particularly bothered by that in the sense that it doesn't mean they're broken. And maybe because of that, doing research with people who were grieving felt feasible for me in, in a way that I think it didn't for a lot of my colleagues. And so I tried very hard to to listen closely to what they were telling me and how they were describing their experience so that I could match that up with neuroimaging and blood draws and all those other sort of sciencey bits. And what, what are the most profound things you found through that work? And, and sorry, how long have you been working in this space now? Well, I started my first grief study in 1999, so it's been, it's been a while. <laughs> One of the things that has really struck me is that you can't really talk about grief until you talk about love and bonding. Because you have to ask, what is lost when we have the loss of a loved one? And what you really see in sort of attachment theory that we use, attachment theory is sort of that, if you ever have the, the little image in your head of ducklings following along after their mum, those invisible tethers, that's that attachment you feel for your close loved ones. What we know is that that attachment, it's encoded in the brain. It's physiologically a part of your neural connections and the way the proteins are folded in your brain. And that love and bonding really drives us to seek out our mother again or our, our duckling child or our partner or our best friend, whomever. Those attachment bonds are so strong and so motivating for our behavior because our loved ones they really are as necessary to our survival as food and water. So our brain devotes a lot of effort to making sure we stay attached to them. Our brain has these beliefs that go along with that attachment relationship. I will always be there for you, and you will always be there for me. What that means is that they don't have to be in our presence for us to know that they're out there, right? That we go home at the end of the day and... And the trouble is that when a loved one dies, our brain continues to believe that for a long time. And you'll even hear people say this. I know this sounds strange, but it, it almost just feels like they're on a trip or I just can't shake the feeling they're going to walk through the door again because our brain continues to have this belief that they're everlasting. It's an implicit part of that relationship. Well, on the other hand, of course, our brain also has a memory system. It understands the reality. It, you know, if you were there when your loved one died or you were at the funeral. But I think it takes a long time to really understand they're gone because the brain is, is really conflicted. And if we think of grieving as sort of a form of learning, 
then these two ways of thinking about your loved one, they get in the way of learning that they're really gone. Mm, it's so interesting. And I think your whole point about the neurological part or the science of it is really fascinating to me. And the book that you have brought out is obviously really tackling that topic. It's called The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Signs of How We Learn from Love and Loss. And so you've just sort of touched on that a little bit there, Mary Frances. One of the things I was curious about is what happens in the brain during grief. And I'd love you to sort of describe that a little bit more for people to listen and understand sort of, you know, if you call it that neurologically, what goes on. It's a little hard for people, I think, to imagine what neurobiology of grief looks like. So I'm just going to give you a flavor for what a participant might do in one of my research studies, just so you have sort of a more concrete understanding of, of what it is that we're studying or how we're studying it. When I have a bereaved participant in a neuroimaging study, I ask them to bring a photograph with them when they come for an interview, a photograph of the person who has died, you know, to show me who, who this person is in their life. They're telling me the story of what happened when their loved one died. And so I take that photograph and I can scan it into a computer and it means that I can show it to the person on goggles when they're laying in a neuroimaging scanner. That's the same kind of scanner if you have to have an MRI on your knee or you, you know, your shoulder or something. But this one is special because it measures blood flow in the brain. And what that tells us is what parts of the brain are functioning when we're doing something like looking at a photo of our loved one. And so when we do these studies, one of the things that we've discovered is that people in those interviews have told me how much they're yearning for their loved one. And that's, you know, on a scale of, of one to 10, it's a quantitative sort of rating. And what we find is there's a very particular part of the brain and the more yearning they tell us they're having, the more activation in this nucleus accumbens, this very specific region in the middle of the brain. And I think that's just remarkable, this feeling that is so motivating and strong, that just yearning, just wanting them back again, is very much encoded. And it's encoded in a very specific part of the brain that we know is important even across different species in other types of loss responses, separation responses. And so I think that knowing this often, I think it makes people feel that it's not their fault that they feel so intensely with loss. It is their brain that is trying to help them, is trying to sort out what's going on and wants us to stay close if it is at all possible with our loved ones and takes time to understand when we can't. I guess that makes me think if you know that and it is that particular brain and I don't want to go through grief, I've done it enough and I know it's pretty shit. And so can I just numb that piece? Like, isn't there anything scientific, Mary Frances, that we can make this easier and faster and we can get through this process and out the other side? Because grieving is really horrible. Like, what do you say to that? Because we all want to speed this stuff up and get it over with. And you've given a scientific element to it. Why can't we fix it faster? Yeah, yeah. It's such a great question. And I think all of us think, oh my gosh, this is just so painful. But there's a funny thing about painful things. They're also very helpful, right? So when we touch the stove and that's very, very painful, 
it is partly that we're learning. Oh, this is how life works. We have to wrestle with the fact that we are mortal, and all of our loved ones are mortal. And while it is painful to wrestle with that, it may in fact change the way we live our life if we honestly accept that that is true. But the irony about that. And you know, many of my students tell me I'm way too happy to be studying death and loss, right? But the irony about that is, when you know what painful suffering is like, you can also really understand what savoring is like, what the joy and love means in a very different way, because you know its absence.、Mm, I completely agree with you, but I still don't want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so you talk a little bit about one of the things that I read a lot when going through my early stages. Losing my mum was probably the most traumatic grief that I've had. I've had a fair bit of grief and for different things in my life, but that was, you know, I was only twenty-seven, and one of the things that helped me reconcile through the grieving process of, I remember vividly, a year to the day that first anniversary. And I obviously hadn't dealt with anything, any of the full emotion. I was trying to keep the family together, organise everything, and just get on with life. And I ended up being in the bottom of the shower, you know, in a mess. Like even my husband at the time, just remember him looking at me, going, "What the hell's wrong with you?" And it was only through learning more about grief and reading and understanding it, then I started to wade my way out of that mud, if you call it. One of the things that I read a lot about was Kubler Ross's maybe six stages of grief, and I'm curious because you debunk that and you talk about this in a different way. So for those that don't know about it, I mean maybe talk to that. But your understanding around you know grief on a neurological level is very different to that, and I'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit more. Well, you know, I have a lot of respect for Dr. Elizabeth Kubler Ross. I actually think she was a remarkable woman, a woman in psychiatry when there weren't a lot of women in psychiatry, and had this revolutionary idea that you could talk to people who were dying, which was just unheard of, you know. And so she did what all good scientists do initially: she interviewed and she observed and she thought about what she was hearing. First, from people who were dying, and then later from people who were grieving, and she described for us what many people were telling her. And I think those descriptions are accurate. That she talked with people who felt angry. She talked with people who felt depressed. She talked with people who were really pretty much in denial that it was happening, and people who were accepting that this loss had happened. I think the trouble is that those interviews. Are good descriptions, but they're not a good prescription for the path through which you might travel. That is to say, that those experiences people have, they don't happen in a linear way. You don't do all of anger and then you're done with it, right? Or you may not have anger at all, and it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with your grieving. In more Modern research, we're able to follow the same person over time, and so we, you know, we interview the same person again and again over a couple of years, even. And so, what we know from that is that, in general terms, yearning decreases and acceptance increases. We know that waves of grief for most of us become less intense, less frequent over time. But that it doesn't go away. There's no mysterious sort of closure. 
it means that we come to understand grief. We understand that we are a person who has grief. And it becomes more familiar. We, we learn how to comfort ourselves in those moments. But it doesn't mean that if you have a wave of grief years later, that you've done something wrong, that there's been something wrong with your grieving process. Yeah, fascinating. And I've always wondered why some people grieve, really prolong grief, and others seem to get over it quickly. Is there any kind of answer for that? I think there are probably a lot of answers. I mean, I think every grief is going to be unique to that relationship. Certainly every marriage I know looks pretty different. (laughs) And so maybe we shouldn't be totally surprised that grief looks different in every relationship. Uh, There are some things that we know. So to the degree that you have a, a strong overlap with that person, that the we is a big part of your life. So that could be because they're your mother or your your partner, that your ability to sort of function in the world when that big we chunk has been torn away, that's probably going to be more impactful. But it doesn't have to be your your partner. I mean, some people are very attached to their secretary. <laughs> you know, they're the person every day that they can kind of rely on. And so someone might grieve for a long time over their secretary. It's, I think, largely about the centrality of this relationship in your life. And in addition, I think some of us have developed skills around managing strong emotions. And some of us have to really learn that in many ways for the first time. How do I cope with the fact that I am likely to have these strong waves of grief? What do I do? What's the what's the whole toolkit of coping strategies that I have to learn to manage that, you know, differently in a board meeting than when I'm sitting at home Saturday night and I don't want to go out? You know, those are really different skills we have to learn. What are some of those coping mechanisms? What have you seen through your research that people have found that is more effective than perhaps other things, you know, like completely avoiding the world and staying on your couch forever? Well, this is the interesting thing. I think what we're discovering in research is it isn't so much that one coping strategy is more effective than the other, that you should do this one and not that one, but it's more actually whether the coping strategy matches the situation. So it's more important to have a whole bunch of different strategies. And I'll give you an example. You know, avoidance gets a really bad rap. (laughs) But there are moments where avoidance can be really appropriate. You know, you're at your daughter's soccer game and you think, you know what? For the next 45 minutes, I am just going to pretend that her dad has not died. I'm just not going to think about that at all. I'm going to cheer for her, and I'm just going to be as happy for her as I can. And in that moment, there's nothing wrong with that denial, that avoidance. That is totally appropriate in that moment. If we only have avoidance as our one strategy, you know, like having a hammer every time you come across a house project, the only thing you have is a hammer that's probably not going to work well for us in the long run because we are going to keep having those feelings of grief come up. And if we also have ways to 
reach out and ask for support from someone or go for a walk and think about those important memories and and why that person's role in your life has been so instrumental or you take a yoga class or you, you know, in the book I talk about, you know, you throw your coffee cup across the room, you know, and let it break on the wall. I found boxing works, <laughs> punching the crap out of stuff. That's right. <laughs> Getting that energy out of your body. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is about having this wide range, depending on what you're facing at the moment. Mm. What do you say to people or how do you navigate when others have an opinion of how you're grieving? So you're in the thick of it and you might be having a moment like that, that you've like mustered all your energy and you're just going to be positive for your child on the day. And someone, whether it's a family member or, you know, a stranger, is like, oh, that's a bit weird. Didn't her partner just die? Why is she so happy on the side of the soccer field? I mean, I've seen a lot of that in my life and experienced it from people having an opinion about how I'm grieving. What do you say to that? And how do you navigate those circumstances, I guess? Yeah, this is really challenging. There's so many misunderstandings about what we should be feeling. There's such a there's such a lot of shoulds in grief. And I think part of it depends on what your relationship is with that person. So if this is your child's friend's parent, it may not be relevant to engage in it at all. I sometimes think what you think about my grief is none of my business. Like you go do your thing. I'm busy doing my thing and, and managing it as well as I can. If it is a person, though, that you have an ongoing relationship with, I think it can be helpful to sort of explain to them, look, you know, every time I see you, you you give me the sad doe eyes and you ask, how are you? And maybe that's not the best way to start every conversation we're going to have from now until who knows, right? So we think it depends a little bit on what the relationship is like with the person who is sort of feels like they're either judging you or they're just mismatched to what you need. I think trying to be clearer, if you have the energy for it, about what you need or even just, you know, let me just tell you on the day what I need. I think most people feel really awkward around people who are grieving. And so to the degree that we can give them some grace, give us some grace, but try to you know, communicate as well as we can about it just doesn't feel great to me when this happens. You know, I think that's important. A good friend of mine who her son died as a two-year-old and she said, you know, I like better than the golden rule. She said, I like the platinum rule, which is treat others as they would want to be treated. Yeah. It's such a hard one because it's something I'm asked quite often for someone trying to support someone else grieving. And, you know, if you're in the thick of the grieving, it's almost like, why should I have to actually manage someone else as well? Like, you know, those people trying to reach out to you and and they're awkward and they don't know what to say. And what I experienced a lot in my life was that people just ignored me or you know, avoided me or they just were too scared. And it wasn't until years later that they confided in me of how, you know, how much shame they felt for that, for, to not be there for me, but they just didn't know what to do. And I said to them at the time, and these were different, these were very close friends. And I said, well, you should have just said that. I don't know what to say. I can't even imagine what you're going through, but I'm here for you. And if there's anything I can do or, you know, whatever, or just do something for me, you know, like... <laughs> Bring me cake. Cake's always good. (laughs) But I'm curious about through all the work that you've done and the the work that you help others to do, 
if you have some advice for people that are trying to support others that are grieving, you know, what are those sort of top things that you'd recommend? I think for me, the awareness that it is not your goal as the grief adjacent person, it is not the goal to cheer them up. It is not the goal to make them feel differently than they feel. They're already having a hard enough time figuring out what it is that they feel. And that's really hard. It's really hard to be with someone and not think, I have a job here and my job is to, you know, make them smile or make them whatever. I think also knowing that they're going to have reactions that they may not even intend to, and that's not your fault either. Also, just as you say, just keep showing up. I can tell you I have talked to hundreds, if not thousands, of people who are grieving. And I will still say things. And then I think, why did I say that? That's a terrible thing to say <laughs> after all this time. And so I just say to the person, I don't know why I said that. That was probably not helpful. Is there something I could say that would sound different, you know, or how did that sound to you? Or are you getting a lot of these, you know, things that don't sound very helpful? What do you wish that you were getting instead? When you're grieving, it's like your whole emotion volume dial is just turned up, right? And so a student was telling me about her next door neighbors were an elderly couple. And when he passed away, the next Christmas, her boyfriend had gone next door and, and knocked on the door and said to the widow, listen, I know your husband always put up Christmas lights for this house. And, and I just wondered if you might want me to, to do that this year, right? And she frowned at him and she said, no, I don't want any help. And he, she slammed the door. And he thought, oh, Lord, I've really done the wrong thing here, right? I mean, that was just clearly, it was terrible, right? And, you know, 24 hours later, she came over and she knocked on the door and she said, it's just so hard for me that he can't do those things for me anymore. I would love to have you help me with the lights. And I can tell you, you know, the stories about how he did them. It's so hard for me in the moment to realize that he won't do that. And this is why I was so angry and I'm so sorry, right? So it's not about you. She's going to react because she's grieving. And then also you happen to be there. Yeah, it's so true. And I think, you know, they're lucky they had the opportunity to, to reconcile and for her to tell him that and for him to learn from that, whereas some people don't get that chance and they think, reaching out has meant that they have upset the person and invariably you know when you're in the thick of it memories or conversations does bring up stuff that sometimes is lovely to remember and you do cry and you do you know have those moments and that's okay as well I think that's you know people are like oh but I don't want to make you cry I'm like it's fine that's a release that's part of grief that's right you're not going to break them they already feel broken inside. It's not something you're doing. It's the grief. And you're probably going to help them find a way to access a part of their memory or a part of their, their new understanding of the world. You know, she had to find a way to have Christmas this year, and this was going to be part of it. And how marvelous that you know, this random young man should be a part of her life now in this strange sort of way, right? Mary Frances, you have a lovely disposition. You are very optimistic and upbeat. And obviously, I don't know you well to know whether you're like this all the time. But I'm curious, as you said before, about some of the learnings, you know, working in this space for as long as you have, 
If there's one thing that you would love to impart on the world, you know, what you learn from having these conversations with people, what would that be? You know, when we have a chance to be supported in our grief, when we use it as a moment to understand how life really works, it can mean that we take really marvelous lessons away, like people really are good to us, or we really have to seize the day, you know? I mean, I think both my parents are deceased as well, and and my partner's parents are both living, much younger. You know, spending holidays with your family can be sometimes stressful. And, and there's this level at which, yes, all that stress is going on. And at the same time, because I understand that we won't have those Christmases forever, there's a way in which I find I can just sort of relax into savoring it, even the stressful part, you know, even the sort of silly arguments and all that, because it is a part of it. It is a part of the bigger picture. I think that's something that grief can give us, that we have a a new lens, a new context for how life works. Beautiful chatting to you today. Thank you so much. It's just divine. And I encourage everyone to read your book. It's, you know, in terms of learning more about this and having that scientific kind of, you know, if you don't believe in the woo-woo and the feelings, (laughs) it gives that beautiful groundedness. So thanks for all the work you're doing in this space. It's lovely to meet you. Really lovely to meet you, Michelle. And I really appreciate you bringing the conversation to people. It's such an important conversation. Well, there you have it. Wasn't that an incredible conversation? I hope you enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. If you did like it, can I ask a small favor? Please rate and review on your listening platform for me. I know everyone asks this, but it seriously makes a difference to help get these conversations out in the world and makes all the hard work and effort I put into this for you all the more worthwhile. And until next time, if you have one question you'd like to ask me, hit me up on my socials or jump on my website, michellejcox.com.